Well, as we continue in worship this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, the first epistle of John. It's towards the end of your Bible, just before the book of Revelation. As we prepare to read the passage, I want to give us some background. About a year and a half ago, I set out to begin preaching through 1 John, uh, taking up the pulpit ministry around once per month. However, with various uh, hindrances, I was unable to continue after preaching through only the first chapter in two parts. Now, by God's grace, some of those hindrances have been relieved, and I hope to continue pressing on through John's epistle in the coming months. Uh, today, as we come to the preaching of God's Word, we are considering 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. But in order to understand our passage rightly, we need to place it in its context. Within this, John's first epistle. And so we'll read from the beginning of 1 John all the way through chapter 2, verse 6, to help us see how the beginning of chapter 2 transitions from the message of the first chapter into the remaining content of the letter. John says again and again in this letter that he has written so that we may know if we truly belong to Christ. And as we consider these few verses, we come face to face with one of the most pressing difficulties for examining the genuineness of our faith as we try to understand our present corruption in view of God's perfect moral standard, we run into the relationship of law and gospel, of obedience and mercy, of discipleship and indwelling sin. Now, for many new Christians, these are sticking points that can lead to feelings of hypocrisy or uncertainty. And those responses left unresolved will produce in the Christian life the extremes of either utter despair on the one hand or self-righteousness on the other. And these form the basis for the corresponding errors of easy believism on the one hand, and Christian perfectionism on the other. In addition to this monumental consideration, we get to also consider a favorite verse that's used in attempts to disprove God's particular redemption of His chosen people, in favor of a philosophy of universal atonement. So today we consider a few short verses, but how we understand them has massive implications for how we live the Christian life. And so let's dive in together. 1 John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, reading through chapter 2, verse 6. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. This is the holy, perfect, and sufficient word of God. Let us go to our great God in prayer. God, we come to you in view of your word, grateful again and again that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have not left us to our own imaginations to discover who you are, but that you have made yourself known to us through your word. Lord, we thank you that you appointed apostles who saw Christ, who touched him with their hands, who heard him, who beheld him before and after his resurrection, so that our faith may be built on the confident knowledge of the Christ who walked, who lived, who worked miracles, who suffered and died, and who rose again and who ascended into heaven. God, we ask that you would grant us greater and greater faith and confidence in the sufficiency of Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. God, we pray that you would grant us right understanding of your word. We know that the natural reasoning of man is insufficient for us to rightly grasp what you have revealed to us, and so we ask that your spirit would be illumining hearts and minds to understand your word. We pray that your spirit would apply the word to every heart here today. Father, we pray especially for those who are yet estranged from you, who have not been joined to Christ through faith. We ask that today you would convict them of their sin, that you would cause them to repent of their sin and to cling to Christ for his righteousness in their place. Father, for those who may have professed faith in Christ and yet are walking in a way that is contrary to him, We ask that today would be the day that you convict them of their hypocrisy, that you convict them of their own self-deception, that you show them the way of true faith, a faith that produces works of righteousness. Also for those who are here today who are standing on the basis of their righteousness, believing that you will save them because they are good in your sight, God, we ask that you would convict them too, that you would cause them to despair of hoping in themselves that you would cause them to cast themselves wholeheartedly on Christ, who alone is sufficient for the righteousness that you require. God, please be honored and glorified in us today as we seek to understand your word. Please be honored in us as we go out from here, as we seek to apply your word. God, in all these things, we ask that Christ's name would be magnified. We do pray in his precious name. Amen. 
Here in the first chapter, we saw that John roots his letter in the certainty of his testimony concerning Christ, that Christ is the word of life who is made manifest. He was seen and heard and touched by John and the other apostles together, both before and after his death and resurrection. And Christ alone is the basis of true fellowship with God the Father and with his people, the church. John then exposes the central burden of this letter that God is light. And so because God is light, those who have fellowship with him will walk in light and not in darkness. And yet John still says that any claim to sinless perfection in the life of a Christian proves that one is self-deceived and rejects God's word. Further still, he says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful to his promise And he honors his own justice in forgiving us and cleansing us according to the blood of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Well, chapter 1 lays a foundation for us for the content of John's letter. Chapter 2 begins with a transition. As John explains the right application of the forgiveness that he's described here in the first chapter. And as he introduces the themes of love and assurance that he will develop through the rest of this letter. And by giving one of the many tests that help us to test the genuineness of professed faith in Christ. Now in the epistles, that is the letters of the New Testament, we see a regular pattern where we are told the glorious truth of all that we have in Christ, and then we're commanded to live in accordance with that truth. That proclamation of the truth is the indicative. It states what is true that we must believe The command to respond to that truth in holiness is the imperative, telling us the good that we must do. Here John is writing primarily in the indicative mood, telling us what is. And our response is partially prescribed for us and partially implied to us within the context of this passage. And so as we dig into this current passage, I want to organize our consideration into four indicatives and three imperatives that flow from the truth that John displays here. First, in the first half of verse 1, we see our first indicative. Forgiveness of sin motivates holiness. Forgiveness of sin motivates holiness. John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now here John is referring back to what he just wrote beforehand. Namely, that if we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar. But that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. John knows that in the deceitfulness of sin, his hearers might suppose that because our sins are forgiven and cleansed, that we're free to go on sinning without restraint, relying on the blood of Christ to cover over sins without repentance. This is the same attitude of Paul's hypothetical questioner that he responds to in Romans 6, verse 1, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul responds, Certainly not. Here in 1 John 2, verse 1, John clarifies that he is not writing so that we would continue in sin, but he is writing so that we would turn away from sin. The forgiveness of of God is meant to cause us to turn from sin and not to embrace it. Now the phrase here, may not sin, 
It translates the phrase not sin in the Greek in the subjunctive mood. Now, that subjunctive mood expresses conditionality or potentiality. And so with the language of may not sin, this passage might bring to mind, as some of us have considered, the fourfold state of mankind in the unfallen, fallen, redeemed, and glorified states. And while it is true that in the redeemed state the believer is freed from utter bondage to sin and becomes able to not sin, they may not sin, even while they still retain their ability to sin, John's point here is not about ability. He is not saying that his writing produces within us the ability not to sin, but rather his point is about the desired outcome of his words. Church, heeding John's words should motivate us to turn away from sin and to pursue holiness rather than tolerating and excusing sin in our lives. Forgiveness of sin should motivate our pursuit of holiness, not a tolerance of lawlessness. Paul, likewise, asks about our response to God's mercy in Romans 2, verse 4, where he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And in his question, as in John's clarification, these two apostles together destroy the argument of false religions like Catholicism and the legalistic perversions that call themselves Christians who say that teaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone must motivate lawlessness. Far from it, forgiveness of sins by grace through faith is the only right motivation for true obedience that comes from the heart. And at the same time, these apostles destroy the confidence of the antinomian, the lawless one who denies any right use of God's moral law going on sinning so that grace may abound. Far from an excuse for sin, the mercy that they rely on is meant to lead them to turn away from sin. This rightly motivated obedience is often referred to as evangelical obedience. It's an obedience that flows from the gospel. This is obedience that does not seek to earn or to deserve any good thing from God's hand, recognizing that we can only ever deserve God's wrath because even our best works are tainted by sin. Evangelical obedience is a joyful obedience that is the glad response of a redeemed heart overflowing with gratitude for God's free gift of grace through the precious blood of Christ. Church, I want you to see how easy it is to fall into trying to earn God's favor through our works. Legalism and self-justification is the natural false religion of the fallen heart. And Satan is always raising it against us. Satan and his demons whisper to us again and again. They say, God can't just forgive you for what you've done. You have to clean yourself up first. You have to fix yourself before God can accept you. But friend, God has spoken to us of the reward that comes for an obedience that would try to gain justification through works. In Romans 3, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law comes knowledge of sin. And again in Galatians 5, Paul says, You have become estranged from Christ if you attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. 
Christian, we need to know and remember with all certainty that our reconciliation to the Father comes before our obedience to Him, not the other way around. And we need to remember that forgiveness of sins is not given to permit lawlessness, but in order to produce holiness. That's our first indicative, that forgiveness of sin motivates holiness. In the second half of verse 1, we see our second indicative. Christ is the constant advocate for repenting sinners. Christ is the constant advocate for repenting sinners. John continues saying, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here we see John's optimistic realism. He calls us to not sin with the, expect- with the expectation that we will turn away from sin. And at the same time, he tells us what to do when we do sin. And I want you to notice who he says has an advocate here. He doesn't say that if anyone sins, they have an advocate. As though he's speaking only of unbelievers having an advocate for their initial redemption. No, John says if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. We, the redeemed sons and daughters of the Most High God. We who have been forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. When we sin, we have an advocate. Augustine points us here to see John's humility too. He wrote of this verse saying, Assuredly, John was a righteous and great man who from the Lord's bosom drank the secrets of his mysteries. He, the man who by drinking from the Lord's bosom wrote of his Godhead, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John, being such a man as this, does not say you have an advocate with the Father. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. John chose rather to put himself in the number of sinners that he might have Christ for his advocate than to put himself in Christ's stead as advocate and to be found among the proud that should be condemned. See, even the Apostle John acknowledges his present need for Christ as advocate. And if the Holy Apostle John needed Christ as an advocate for his sins, how much more do we likewise need Christ as our constant advocate for our sins? Because we can never in this lifetime say that we have no sin, we are ever in need of a constant advocate. And thank God, even as Satan, the accuser of the brothers, who accused us day and night has been cast down, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, whoever lives to intercede for the saints. Now this word here, advocate, it's the Greek word parakletos, or paraclete. It's used only by John in the New Testament. And in John's Gospel, he attributes it to the Holy Spirit, where it's translated as helper or comforter. As Jesus says, he will send another paraclete, another helper. Christ has identified himself as a paraclete too. In some ancient Greek literature, the word was used generally for a helper, but it was primarily used specifically for an advocate in legal proceedings as a defense attorney. And so, as our advocate before the Father, Christ pleads our case. And He is uniquely qualified to plead our case for us in the presence of the Father because of His righteousness. 
and Jesus Christ the righteous. Matthew Henry helpfully explains, In another court, an advocate may be an unjust person himself, and yet may have a just cause to plead, and may accordingly carry his cause. But here, the clients are guilty. Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. Their sin must be confessed or supposed. It is the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminals. He has been righteous to the death, righteous for them. He has brought in everlasting righteousness. This the judge will not deny. Upon this score, he pleads that the client's sins may not be credited to them. See, church, it is Christ the righteous who pleads his righteousness for our account so that we would be welcomed by the Father according to the perfect righteousness of the Son and not according to the guilt and shame of our sin. This is amazing grace indeed. This pleading of Christ's righteousness in our place is the positive imputation, the positive crediting of his righteousness in our behalf. But that still only solves half of our problem before a holy God. Christ indeed pleads his righteousness for us as our constant advocate, but he doesn't plead only his righteousness. He also pleads his blood for us, displaying our third indicative this morning. Christ is the sufficient sacrifice for all his people. Christ is the sufficient sacrifice for all his people. We read in verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now this is where we step into some controversy. This is one of the most debated verses of the New Testament, with two major issues brought into consideration here. First, there's the debate of propitiation versus expiation. And secondly, there's the debate of universal atonement versus definite atonement. Let's first consider propitiation we read that Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Well, a propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath, satisfying his justice, and purchasing his favor on the one who is propitiated for. More recently, some scholars have desired to soften the image of a God who has real wrath that must be dealt with and satisfied. And so they've tried to argue that the better sense of the word here is expiation, which is simply the removal of guilt from the one who is expiated. But the analogy of faith, the the rule of Scripture, demonstrates handily that there is no justification for separating propitiation from expiation because there is no expiation apart from propitiation. There is no cleansing from guilt without the satisfaction of wrath. To see that displayed, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9. There we'll read verses 22 through 28. Here the writer to the Hebrews is explaining the atonement of Christ as the greater fulfillment, the true substance that was shadowed in the sacrificial system of Israel. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read verses 22 through 28. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. 
And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. See it, church. There is no removal of guilt without satisfaction of wrath. There is no expiation without propitiation. Verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavenly places should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, To those who will eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. See, Christ made atonement for his people by the propitiation of his own self-sacrifice. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Here, too, we see also the sufficiency of his sacrifice. By one sacrifice, one time, he put away all the sins of all his people, for all time, in all places. Christ most certainly died to propitiate God's righteous wrath for sin, so that he might remove the sins of his people and exchange them for his perfect righteousness. Church, see our blessed advocate, Christ the righteous who loved us and gave himself for us, and who ever lives to plead for us in the presence of the Father pleading his righteousness and his blood in our behalf. This is the confidence we have from Romans 8, verses 33 through 35. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who then shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Now, the other issue of debate here in 1 John 2, verse 2, is the extent of the atonement. Arminians often point to this verse to try to refute the doctrine of definite redemption, or the L of tulip as limited atonement. Now, sadly, the common labeling as limited atonement is not actually an accurate distinction of Reformed theology over and against Arminianism because both Arminians and Calvinists limit the atonement, although in two different ways. Calvinists understand that there is a limit to the extent of the atonement, those to whom it is applied, while Arminians limit the effectiveness of the atonement. There is a limit to how effective it is. Reformed theology understands on the basis of 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not merely to make salvation possible. Reformed theology understands on the basis of John 10, 11, that that Jesus said that he lays down his life for the sheep and not for the goats who will persist in rejecting Christ, bearing the guilt of their own sin. We understand on the basis of John 17 
that Jesus said he would give eternal life to as many as the Father would give him, and that while he prayed for God to sustain and sanctify those elect whom the Father had given, he explicitly said that he was not praying the same for the world who would reject him. So then what are we to make of Christ, the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Well, as the classic saying goes, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. There's a lot of text in there. And what that means is that when we rip a verse out of its context, we can use it to say just about anything we want it to. And so we need to be careful. We need to allow the context here to control how we understand the meaning of this verse. Why is John writing here? Well, John is writing this verse to assure the believers in Asia Minor that Christ is a sufficient sacrifice, making full atonement for their sins so that he can be their perfect advocate. At its most basic level, we can certainly affirm that the blood and suffering of the incarnate Christ is so infinitely valuable that if God had designed to redeem every creature and all creation by it, Christ would not have had to suffer one ounce more than he already did. But we need to see also that that does not in any way communicate that Christ intended to suffer for those who would not be saved. If he had suffered as their propitiation, and yet they are condemned in their unbelief, well then Christ would be an insufficient sacrifice who is unable to save those for whom he died. But that is not what John is communicating here at all. He is not contradicting the words of Christ as recorded in his own gospel account. Now, the most accurate meaning of this statement in its context is that Christ has propitiated for the sins of all the saints in all places at all times. And so then, if Christ's blood can atone for all the saints in all places at all times, how sufficient is his blood to atone for me, even me? Still truly, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice does give us grounds for a universal gospel call. We cannot measure out the value of Christ's blood and count up how many saints might be redeemed by it and then shut the door against any others who would come to him. No, we proclaim the good news that Christ has once and for all satisfied God's wrath and fulfilled all righteousness to become the perfect advocate and the sufficient sacrifice for absolutely everyone who will trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And we know that by his sacrifice, he has purchased not only the redemption of all who believe, but even the very faith that unites Christ's people to himself. Now, in this consideration, I, I want to say that I'm greatly indebted to John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ for my thoughts and understanding on the sufficiency and extent of Christ's atonement. There is so much more that we could cover there that time will not allow us to cover today. And so if you're interested to learn more and to understand the arguments better, don't be intimidated by the name, but go ahead and dive in. It's available for free as a PDF online or as an audiobook, um, and uh, there you'll find far more detail than I'm able to get into today, and you'll find a marvelous, awe-inspiring consideration of Christ's sacrifice for his flock along with a clear biblical refutation of false theories of the atonement. Now, we've seen three indicatives so far. First, that forgiveness of sin motivates holiness. 
Second, that Christ is the constant advocate for repenting sinners. Third, that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice for all His people. And now in verses 3 through 5, we come to our fourth and final indicative. Union with Christ is displayed in faithful discipleship. Union with Christ is displayed in faithful discipleship. Read with me in verses 3 through 5. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. Church, how do we know if we truly know Christ, if we are truly partakers of His propitiation through faith? Verse 3 says, if we keep His commandments. Verse 5 says, whoever keeps His word. Here John is using these ideas of commandments and word as synonyms. He's using them to point to the same reality, the same message, the one and same message and commandment of Christ that we would keep His commandments, that we would keep His Word, that we would honor what He has revealed to us and commanded for us. What does it mean to keep? Well, keeping here expresses a diligent faithfulness and obedience, a diligent commitment to grow in holiness, to honor, to preserve, to consider, and to conform ourselves to the commands of Christ. And he says here that in him who keeps the word, the love of God is perfected. Church, this is something that is so controversial in our world today. The world around us says that love and obedience have nothing to do with each other, that love and law are diametrically opposed. The world around us says, if you love me, you will let me. Now, that is not the love of God. The love of God is perfected as we are conformed into the image of Christ. The love of God expressed towards us produces holiness in us. And our love towards God is not displayed in ecstatic experiences or in sentimental feelings. Our love of God is displayed in obedience to His Word and His ways. An obedience that flows from love, that flows from joy, that desires to please our Father who loved us our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. In the middle here, verse 4 reminds us of the very real possibility of false professors and even unknowing false professors. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now we need to remember that this lying is not necessarily deliberate. 1 John 1.8 refers to those without the truth as self-deceived. See, the fiction of false profession can even deceive the false disciple. And this is a good reminder for all of us that we need to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. The standard that John gives us today is that of keeping Christ's commandments and Christ's words. And so we need to know that rejecting Christ and rebelling against His commandments, that disregarding holiness, that habitually excusing sin without repentance, these are all signs of a false professor who does not know.
Christ. So I want to encourage you to examine yourself, to consider if indeed you have been walking as one who rebels against Christ's commands, who disregards holiness, who counts holiness as unimportant, as not worth pursuing, or one who habitually makes excuses for your sin. Oh, I just did that because. God understands. That is not the way of following Christ. That is not the way of one who is united with Christ by faith. Now, the great purpose of this epistle is not so much to rouse the false professor, although that is certainly a valid use. John's primary purpose here is to encourage the true brothers and sisters as they are being confused and harassed by false professors. They, the true brothers and sisters, are being surrounded and infiltrated and despised by those advocates of lawless living. Now, this is very similar to the easy believism and the moral liberalism that have taken root in the American church today. Brother and sister, if you are one who is taking the commands of Christ seriously, repenting of every known sin when it comes to your knowledge, pursuing holiness, and growing more and more in your distaste for the fleeting pleasures of sin, take heart. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And if you do sin, when you do sin, remember that we have an advocate before the face of the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, who is himself the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of all the saints in all ages and in all the world. I want to turn now to three imperatives, three points of application that flow from this passage. And I'll address verse 6 as our third imperative. Some of you might have noticed we didn't get that far yet. Our first imperative, look to Christ as your sufficient sacrifice. Look to Christ as your sufficient sacrifice. Church, this is the foundation of the whole of the Christian life from beginning to end. Looking to Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for my sins, for your sins. And if you are here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ, you know that you do not belong to Christ because you have not trusted in Him. Whether it's because you're still relying on yourself to justify yourself by your own works, or whether it's because you've despised holiness altogether as something irrelevant to your life. I want to urge you today, there is only one way of salvation. There is only one name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And it is through Christ Jesus, through His sufficient sacrifice. On the cross, He took the guilt of our sin to Himself. He suffered the full measure of the wrath that we deserved. In His life, He fulfilled all righteousness for us to meet God's holy standard in a way that we never, ever could in a million years. And He offers to exchange that to us through faith. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who look to Christ and who trust in Him will be saved. Seen by God according to the righteousness of Christ, His perfect obedience, and not according to our sin and our guilt. And friend, if you're here today and you've been professing to know Christ and the Word of God has convicted you that you have not been taking sin seriously that you have not been one who is walking as Christ walks, you've not been one who obeys and keeps the commands of, Christ's, of Christ, 
is that I would invite you to believe in Christ, to look to Christ as the sufficient sacrifice for your sins. And we'll sing this afternoon, or we sang last Sunday in the, one of my favorite hymns, Rock of Ages. Uh, we ask Christ to be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Far too often the, the church neglects this second and essential aspect of salvation. Christ will only be our salvation from the guilt of sin if he is also our salvation from the power of sin, from the dominion of sin. And so if you are here today and you've been walking in this hypocrisy, feeling I know that God calls me to live righteously, but I know that I'm not doing it, I would invite you again to look to Christ, to trust in the death of Christ for the freedom from guilt, and also to trust in the death of Christ as your freedom and hope of growth and holiness your freedom and hope from the dominion of sin in your life. Our second imperative today, what we must do in response. Look to Christ as your constant advocate. Look to Christ as your constant advocate. Church, we have an accuser who loves to tempt us with lies of depending on ourselves or giving in to hopelessness. Brother and sister, do not fear the devil's accusations, but trust in Christ's pleading on our behalf. Do not give in to hopelessness. Do not give in to despairing of growth in holiness. Remember the blood of Christ. Remember his advocacy for us. And do not give in to despairing of our justifiability before God. Do not think that it depends on our works, but remember that we are redeemed to Christ according to his works. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. John Calvin said that Christ's intercession for us is the continual application of his death to our salvation. That is what Christ does for us. Every moment of every day, when we're awake and when we're asleep, when we sit and when we rise, Christ is pleading his blood over us for our freedom from the guilt of sin and our freedom from the dominion of sin. What a comfort that is. As we have a daily need to repent and to confess our sins to God, Christ never ceases to apply his blood and his righteousness to our salvation to carry us from the beginning to the end, to preserve us and to protect us until he brings us safely into glory. And for our third imperative, we turn to verse 6. As we look to Christ as your perfect example. Look to Christ as your perfect example. This is the one imperative that's given to us directly in verse 6. 1 John 2, verse 6. Read with me. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now this ought here is not describing a typical result as though that's just what normally happens. But it's describing a moral obligation. It is a moral ought. If we say that we abide in Christ, if we claim participation in his death and resurrection, we have a duty. We ought to commit ourselves diligently to living according to the way of Christ. Now, what does it mean to walk as Christ walked? Augustine famously quipped about this. He said, does walking like Jesus then mean walking on water? as he was dealing with some who were arguing that walking like Jesus meant to look at whatever he did and try to copycat, try to imitate whatever actions he did. So if he fed 5,000, we should feed 5,000. And if he 
Um, if he uh, gleaned from the field, then we should glean from the field. And whatever practice he did, we should simply imitate that. But no, Augustine uh, confesses, as we need to see too, that this imitation of Christ, walking as he walked, is not a bare copying, but it's a life of discipleship, especially striving to imitate Christ's example of love for God and love for neighbor, the great commandments. And so how do we look to Christ and walk as he walked? Well, as we continue in our study of John's gospel, as Pastor Kyle returns next Sunday, we get to see Christ, and we get to see how he walked. We get to see in him the perfection of holiness in true humanity. And we get to know, insofar as he represented us in perfect righteousness, we too should seek to walk in the same way. Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, we are ever indebted to you for your grace. We are ever indebted to Christ for his righteousness and his blood in our place. God, we confess that not a one of us here is righteous by our own account. Not a one of us here is righteous by our own actions. But each day, each one of us, in more ways than we can number, falls short of the glory of God. Father, we confess that according to your word, by our guilt, we deserve nothing from you but your wrath. And so it is in view of our sin, in view of your justice, that we are all the more grateful for Christ who came to reconcile us to you. God, we marvel at a salvation that honors your justice and yet shows mercy to sinners, that you in your justice can justify the ungodly. God, we marvel at your wisdom and your grace on display in the cross of Christ as he demonstrated fully your love for your people in spite of our sin, as he demonstrated fully your love for your holiness. God, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who love your holiness, that you would cause us to be a people who do not take your mercy as an excuse to press on in sin, but a people who see in your mercy the beauty of freedom to live as Christ, to, to walk as Christ walked. God, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who know what it is to have the blood of Christ for the power to resist sin, to flee from Satan, to flee from temptation, to know the blood of Christ is the power for our holiness in this present life. God, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who live a life of repentance, recognizing day by day the myriad ways in which we fall short of your standard, remembering the myriad of ways in which Christ's blood has redeemed us, in which Christ's righteousness has fulfilled all righteousness for us. God, guard us against the temptation to lean on our own works as the basis for our standing before you, Guard us against the temptation to despair of growth in holiness because of our frailty. Cause us instead in all things to look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, please give us hope in him, day by day. Please give us strength to put off sin and joy to imitate our big brother, Christ, who loved us 
gave himself for us, who is not ashamed to be called our brother. God, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at your mercy. We marvel at your glory and your holiness, too. Be glorified in us, your people. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.